dare I say from chapter 40 on, it's actually kind of encouraging. The first uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah, they can be a little bit of a downer. There's some tough chapters in there about judgment and, and God's um, return and his uh, punishment of sin. Good stuff to hear. We need to know that. But by chapter 40 on, there's almost like this uplifting spirit here. And this is what we see. A little bit different feel from when we get the rest of it. So we're going to do chapter 41 tonight. And this is kind of a uh, potpourri, if you will, of a message. There's basically three main points. And I'd like to say they all kind of intertwine together and they really don't. Um, but I will tell you this. I love this chapter. This has got one of my new favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's in chapter 41 now. And I had a lot of fun with this. So I hope you guys get as much blessing out of this as I did. A lot of different stuff to talk about. Some good old meat to chew on and also some uh, just good application for us too. So without much further ado, Isaiah 41. We're going to skip around with this one a little bit. It says in verse 1, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Now, verse 2, Who raised up one from the east? Now keep that in the back of your mind and stay here in chapter 41, but jump ahead to chapter 25. Excuse me, excuse me, uh, verse 25 of uh, Isaiah 41. Look what he says there. I have raised up one from the north. So we got one from the east, one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name, and he shall come out against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads the clay. So we got somebody coming from the north, and here we have in verse 2, someone coming from the east. Look at all the questions. There's like six who questions here. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him? Who made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Now, you would think as you read through that, who is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about Jesus. Because he's going to talk about Jesus here at the end of chapter 41, which is a nice segue into chapter 42. He's talking about a specific guy. And this specific guy he's talking about is a guy by the name of Cyrus. Now, let's just go one step further here, if you will. Stay in Isaiah and jump ahead, if you will, to uh, Isaiah 44. Because this is where it really, really gets interesting. So God is talking in Isaiah 41. I've called somebody from the east. I've called somebody from the north. Okay, we think he's talking about Cyrus. Why? Look here in Isaiah 44. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Look at verse 1 of chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so the gates will not be shut. Now this is a fascinating prophecy, guys, and just bear with me here for a little bit. If you remember your Old Testament history, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. You had the ten northern tribes that was then known as Israel, and you had the two southern tribes, which is known as Judah, and they were separate nations from then on. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern tribes, and in 586 B.C., Babylon came and destroyed the southern tribes, Judah. Now, who came after Babylon? Does anybody remember? It was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then the Medes and the Persians. Who was the head of the Medes and the Persians? Cyrus. Now, to put this in perspective, Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah roughly in the 8th century. This didn't happen with Cyrus to roughly the 6th century. So this prophecy happened roughly 150 to 200 years before he even knew it. 
Before Cyrus is even born, God by name is calling this man out to say, I'm going to use you. And you know this is exactly what he did. In Isaiah 41, what did he do? He first came from the east. And then what did he do after he came from the east? He came down from the north. That's exactly what Cyrus did. Isaiah pegged it 150 to 200 years beforehand. And if you don't think that, you think, oh, that's just a coincidence, that's why I got chapter 44 and chapter 45. God says, I'll just alleviate any doubt. And that doubt is his name is Cyrus. And that was prophesied 150 to 200 years beforehand. Church tradition holds, and take it or leave it when it comes to church tradition, that Daniel was the one to come meet Cyrus when he entered. Because Daniel had the scriptures in front of him and said, this is you. You are the anointed one. You are the shepherd that was called to do this. And if you remember correctly, the Medes and the Persians were the nations that allowed Israel to go back. They allowed them to go back and what? Rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. Look at verse 28 of Isaiah 44. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. He was built. Nehemiah was sent back. And to the temple your foundation shall be laid. It was laid under Zerubbabel and Zechariah. This is all prophesied 150 to 200 years before, and then if you even go a little farther about the temple being built, 300 to 350 years before. That's amazing. Now, you may not be impressed by that, but I think that's pretty cool. And this is the neat part about this, is God even goes one step further. Stay in Isaiah 41 and look at verse 21. See, because what happens here, God is now going to talk to people about false idols. And he's going to say, look at verse 21, Present your case, says the Lord. Basically, he's talking to the false gods. Make your case while you're a god. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Verse 22. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. See, if you ever want to know what separates the Bible from other quote-unquote holy books, the Bible has prophecy. And that prophecy is fulfilled to the T. And God comes out and says this in Isaiah 41. You want to prove your God? Fine. Prove your God by doing what? Tell me what's going to happen. And then when you tell me what's going to happen and it happens, then you can prove it. God says you can't do it. He says, I can do it. And I'm going to even go one step further. I'm going to give you the guy's name that's going to come and do this type of stuff 150 to 200 years beforehand. Look at verse 23 of Isaiah 41. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. You do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. Your work is nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. What separates the Bible from other religious books? Prophecy. That's the key thing. And that is proven in Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, and Isaiah 45. And I know it's tough sometimes because when you're reading through this, and let's just be honest, probably not many of you are going to pick up the book of Isaiah and say, oh, this is a little light dinner reading. Isaiah is a tough book. But you have to look and say, okay, God, why did you by name mention Cyrus? Why did you by name do it? Because it proved that God knew what he was talking about. Real quick story before we move on. Um, when I went to uh, Defiance College, Defiance College is, quote-unquote, a Christian college. Um, if anybody's ever been to Defiance College knows it's not a Christian college. One of the things that makes it a, quote-unquote, Christian college is they require you to take a Bible class. And the Bible class that I was required to take was uh, the Hebrew Old Bible. And when we got up to the book of Isaiah... Um, the way this book taught it at the Christian colleges, Isaiah was actually written by three different authors. Now, obviously, this is not true. I'm going to make sure you know this. But the way the world teaches it, Isaiah was written by three different authors because starting in Isaiah 41, this was a different Isaiah. And he's writing this after the fact with Cyrus. 
And that's why he can say it's true. Because if you say he wrote it beforehand, how are you supposed to argue with prophecy? You can't. And so that's the way the world looks at this, is they believe there was three different Isaiahs that wrote the book of Isaiah in different time frames. You had the original Isaiah that wrote back in the time of Assyria. Then you had another Isaiah that wrote during the time of Babylon. Then you had another Isaiah that wrote during the times of the Medes and Persians. And these books were all combined together. They just all happened to be by a guy by the name of Isaiah. And it's just absolutely crazy. But that's how the world tries to do this. Real quick, though, I have to share this story that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, the guy that taught that class was an on-fire, amazing Christian. And he struggled with trying to teach that book. In fact, he tried to teach as little as he could out of that book. But he would, in the middle of class, there was, you know, these kids had to take this class. They had to. There's no way around it. So in the middle of class, he would just look at somebody and say, man, you need Jesus. I love that guy. And he would just tell them, you need Jesus. I mean, they're getting paid. They have to be there. There's nothing they could do about it. And he would take that opportunity as a Christian college and actually witness in the middle of that dark school in that dark class. And that was a pretty cool guy to see. And he really, um, was a really neat blessing, real neat blessing. So first point that we have here tonight is prophecy. Real neat point there about prophecy. So as you read through this, remember that. That prophecy is what sets apart the Bible to the T, to the name of Cyrus. It's pretty, pretty impressive. Anybody got any quick comments about this before we move on here? Any historical things or anything like that? Okay. Next point, though, I want to build off the end of uh, verse 4. Those questions are asked, verses 2 through 4, those six who questions. Who raised them up? Who in righteousness? Who gave the nations? Who gave them as dust? Who pursued them? Who has performed it? Basically, verse 4 sums it up. Who has performed and done it? The answer is, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. God says, I'm the one that's done it. I'm the first and the last. Now, you may say, okay, what's the big deal about this point? Another quick story. Um, Years ago, when Dawn and I first got married, we ran into a uh, gal that was a real, real neat gal. And uh, she was a Jehovah Witness, and we worked with her. And so I would go over and talk to her during break and find out more about what she believed and why she believed it, etc. And we said, hey, let's, let's get together and talk about this sometime. And so her husband came over, and uh, Dawn and I sat down with him, and all four of us sat down. And we talked about the differences between Christianity and Jehovah Witnesses and really tried to share with them who Christ really is. Now, you guys have all run into Jehovah Witnesses before. They probably have all popped over to your house. And I'm going to tell you right now, first off, they're very nice people. Second off, they know their Bible better than most Christians. really kind of puts us as Christians to shame, that they know their Bible so well, and there's a lot of times people come up to me and say, I want to talk to them, but I don't know what to say. Now, I can't say whether the Lord is leading with you to get to a debate or not. I've gone through all different types of emotions on this in my Christian walk. There's times where God has said, nope, sit down, open the Bible, crack it open with them, and show them certain things. There's other times where God says, just let this one go. You have to use wisdom there, and the Spirit will lead. But... As I get off track here, one point that came up with this is, if you remember correctly, Jehovah Witness theology is that Jesus is not God. He's the first created being. And they're going to tell you their Bible is the same. It's a different. It's called the New World Translation. Um, And John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They actually changed some of the translation there. And they take away the deity of Christ. That's a huge deal because if Jesus is not God, then we have no sacrifice for sins. That is very, very important. point I'm getting to with this is, watch this. If you will, turn with me to these scriptures. Two of them are in Isaiah. One of them is in the book of Revelation. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to get to that one, but I want you to get there first. Revelation chapter 1. Now, watch what happens here. 
You're in Revelation 1, and I also want you to flip through these other ones as you're going through this. Remember Isaiah 41, verse 4. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Now, I actually did this, and it worked, and I would tell you it was all the Holy Spirit. If you go up and ask them, who is talking in that passage? Jehovah, Lord God Almighty. That's what they will say. I am the Lord, and the first, and with the last, I am He. That's Jehovah, Lord Almighty, God talking. Okay, now... You still got your hand in Revelation 1. Jump over just a couple chapters to Isaiah 44. Now look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, Isaiah 44, verse 6, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. See, that's one of the reasons why the Jehovah Witnesses say there is no Trinity. God says I'm the first and last. There's no other God but me. And so, therefore, Jesus can't be God because there's not an equal. Besides me, there is no God. Okay, who's talking in that passage? Jehovah, Lord God Almighty. Now, check this out. Look in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, who said that? Jesus. There, there, there's not an answer to that. Isaiah 41, 4 says, I'm the first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 says, I'm the first and last. There's no other God. Okay, so there's only one God, right? It's Jehovah Lord God Almighty. So Jesus isn't God. No, Jesus isn't God. There's only one God. Well, then why in Revelation 1, verse 11, is Jesus allowed to say he's the first and the last? Jesus didn't have a problem making himself equal with God. Now, I don't say this as a joke. I don't say this to pick on anybody. I had that conversation with that couple 14 years ago. They said they'd get back to me. I'm still waiting. Now, it's not because I have great answers. I heard this from, uh, I think it was Pastor Crager was the first one that taught me this. And Pastor Crager heard it from some other pastor. This is just the Holy Spirit and how God has designed his word. When God wrote the Bible 2,000 years ago, book of Revelation, and when he wrote the book of Isaiah 3,000 years ago, he put all these passages in there that they would all line up perfectly in 2010 so that we can show that Jesus Christ is equal with God. Now, that's a very important point. Now, just keep that in the back of your head because you are going to run into that sometime in your Christian walk and this is where you're going to think you're going to remember it and you're not going to remember it, okay? Take a pen, write it down, Revelation 1.11. Write down Isaiah 44.6 beside it. And Isaiah 44.6, write down Revelation 1.11. Yes, Susan. It's 1 verse 8. What's that? It's verse 8. Oh, yeah, sorry. You can do verse 8 too. Revelation 1.11, I'm the first and last. And you also can do Revelation 1.8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega in the beginning and the end. Both verse 11 or verse 8 of Revelation 1 will definitely work there. Thank you, Susan, for clarifying that. So you can put this all together. And that's just something you've got to remember to put in the back of your head. Because remember, when you go into battle, spiritual battle, God says the Word of God is your sword. And you need to, we need to realize how to use that because there comes a time and a place. Don't be afraid to quote scriptures. Don't be afraid to whip your sword out. That's what it's there for. So just want to encourage you with that. Get into the Word. Study those things out. That will come back to bless you. I guarantee it. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about that? Everybody got those verses? Yeah, John. Um, they believe the uh, King James, New King James, was mistranslated out of the Greek and the Hebrew, and they're the ones that translated it properly. It, it's it's not a winning argument. It's so, um, and they and they believe that. So they believe the New World Translation is the actual proper thing. And I always want to say this out here, and I make sure everybody knows this. Not against Jehovah Witnesses. 
I'm against the theology they teach. I'm against the false teaching of them. God loves the Jehovah Witnesses. We love the Jehovah Witnesses, and we want to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to them, of what Jesus really, who Jesus really is. We're not trying to bash them, but we don't like the theology that they teach, and we want to make sure they know the truth of Christ so they can have a real relationship with Jesus, God, who died on the cross for their sins. That's the important point. Yeah, Steph. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it will do that. Yep. And I and I have a copy, and I, you guys probably think I'm funky. We keep a copy of the New World Translation usually up here. <laughs> um, and you may wonder why we do that. It's because sometimes questions like that pop up, and it's nice to have a copy of that. Yeah, Dave. I have an NIV. Mm-hmm. And what does NIV mean? NIV admits I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. NIV admits that. When the NIV translation went around, the NIV translation, if correct me if I'm wrong here, was done back in the 70s, if I remember correctly. And um, i got to choose my words carefully here. They were smarter in the 70s, obviously, than what they were when the King James was done in the 1611. And they had new manuscripts. And so in those new manuscripts, they thought there's not enough evidence to have that verse in there. So that's why the NIV pulled it out. So you can go ahead and still use verse 8 of Revelation 1. But you will find that in the NIV, there's certain key passages that are pulled out. Another one, which I think is a real, real important one that's pulled out since we're all subject here, if you go to 1 John 5-7, that is a key passage that is pulled out of the NIV where it says, My new King James says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's a key passage in my mind. And any time we've ever done discipleship out here, when Rich gets to the point of teaching about um, the Trinity, we always go to First uh, John 5, 7, and that passage isn't in there. And so therefore it always gets into a discussion about uh, Bible translations, etc. And I tell you, if anybody ever wants to get together and talk about Bible translations, I, I would love to sit down with you. I've always found it works out better to talk one-on-one. Um, I think there's pros and cons to certain Bible translations. I know for me personally, I like the New King James. I think it has the accuracy of the King James, but it's a little bit easier to understand. Uh, I think New Living Translation is also another good one. There's some other good ones out there. But if you ever want to talk about that, but good point there, Dave. Sometimes in NIV, certain verses are removed because they said the context didn't, they think, verified it enough to have it in there. Yeah, Mark. We may not be against the Jehovah Witnesses, personally. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, as you were saying that, I was thinking of the passage in Second John, um, verse ten. Excuse me, Second John, verse nine. Whoever transgresses and not does, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And, and the point of that is, John is writing there to say, hey, this is a big deal to take away the deity of Jesus. This is a big deal. And I know there's a lot of times, and I've heard people say this, well, you know, in the whole scheme of things, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They believe that Jesus' blood is what saves them. They believe all that, and that's true. But they don't believe Jesus is God. And if you take away the deity of Jesus, you're taking away your sacrifice for sins. We had to have a pure, blameless, perfect sacrifice. We had to have that. Stacy. That is Second John, verses 9 through 11. Second John, verses 9 through 11. All right, anybody else have anything about this before we move on?
Okay, now, we got the prophecy stuff out of the way. We got that other stuff out of the way. I think there's a nice passage here in the middle of Isaiah 41 that's got some great application points. And this is what I want to finish with. There's four questions that we're going to ask ourselves here. We're picking this up here in verse 5. Because what happens is this. God is basically saying here in Isaiah 41 is this idea of tough times are going to be coming. Very simply put, who do you trust? So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what can we do? When those tough times come, when those problems arise, what can we do? Verses 5 through 7 is man's response. What can we do? The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. Whatever it is, fill in the blank for you. What is it makes you afraid? What makes you fearful? What is what scares you? What is worrying you, bothering you? What are you going to do about it? Verse 6. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. Isn't that man's response? If we just pull together, we can get through anything. It's a great idea, but the truth of the matter is we can't. Verse 7. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it may not totter. What are they doing? They're fearful and they're afraid. So the first thing they do is they bind together unity with themselves. Second off, verse 7, they make a false god to save them. But did you note the sarcasm of God at the end of verse 7? They have to put pegs on it so it may not totter because it's going to fall apart. I think, who's got King James here? Doesn't it say something like nail it together, John? Fasten it with nails should, should not be moved. That's their God that's hung together by nails. You can see the sarcasm of the Lord here. Difficult time coming, fearful, afraid, so let's all get together. We can get through this together. We're going to build ourselves a God and we'll nail it together. That's what we think we can do. Well, we can't do anything. So the next passage, verses 8 through 10, is, well, what can God do? This is what God can do, verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Don't you love verse 8, my friend? Verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, verses 5 through 7 is what can we do? We'll bind together as a group and we'll build ourselves a God to save us. Verses 8 through 10, what can God do? God says, I'll take away your fear, I'll uphold you, I'll strengthen you, I'll do that for you. Now, you have to stop after verse 10 and say, which one do you want to do? Because God's not going to force anything on you. If you want to live your life in fear, worry, and anxiety, you can live your life in fear, worry, and anxiety. God's not going to stop you. He's going to tell you, though, it's not going to do any good. And I've also seen people that are that, what I call that tough mentality Christian. I, I can get through this. No, you can't. I, I can do this. I can pull this together. It's a rough season in life right now, but I just, just, just need to whip myself into shape. You can't whip yourself into shape. You're, you're holding your God together by nails. It doesn't work. And for some people, it takes decades to learn that. Decades to learn that. Now, God says, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will do it. What's his will? Third question is, what will God do then for us? Verse 11. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent 
thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Isn't it nice? God does all the fighting for us. We don't have to do it. God does the providing for us. He is Jehovah Jireh, God that provides. How many times have we heard that? Lord, I, I, I got to get the money to pay the bill. God can help provide that. I, I got to find a job. God can help provide that. I got to fix my marriage. God can help provide that. I got to save my kids. God provides that. So often we try to do everything our own. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> the Bible also says if, you know, if you're out there doing nothing, don't also sit there and expect God to do everything. There's a point of where we have an effort and a responsibility to go do that. Lord, save my neighbor, but save him by me not talking to him. No. God says save the neighbor by you also going and sharing Christ with him. But the point is your strength, your power comes from him. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I like how he says this in verse 12. Those who war against you shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. That says, I'll just wipe it out. I will totally wipe out whatever is bringing you down, tearing you down. I will wipe that out. Verse 13 is now my new favorite verse. Because now it may not mean much to you because maybe if you've had kids, you're past this point. But uh, Kenan, uh, our third child, is 20 months old. And he's at the age right now where if he wants something, he'll just come over and grab your hand. And that's what he does. He just leads you. And he'll be in his room building with blocks. And he'll build a tower of two, three blocks. He'll be so excited. He'll come in the living room. And we'll be like, Kenan, you build a tower. He's so excited. And he takes your hand and he has to go show you the tower. Now, I love him. I don't know how many three-tower blocks, whatever, I can see. It kind of gets old after a while. But the point is, he's so excited. And if he wants to go do something, he just comes right up beside you and takes your hand. I love that as a father. I look at verse 13. Isn't this what God is saying? I'm the 20-month-old child. And God says, just fear not. Take my hand. I'll just, I'll just hold your hand through this one. Now I like that. Isn't it nice to know that with whatever I'm facing, God says, I'm going to hold your hand, and fear not, I will help you. Now I think it's very interesting. It says, I will hold your right hand. Does anybody know what the symbolism of the right hand is in the Bible? The right hand is supposed to be the hand of strength. So God is saying, I'm going to take that hand that you think is your strength. He says, I'm, I'm actually going to hold it. So therefore, it's not your strength, it's my strength that's doing it. See, I know some people that like to hold God's hand with their left hand, and they like to do stuff with their right hand. God says, let me hold your right hand, your hand of strength, and I'll just take care of it for you. And I just absolutely love that blessing. So the first passage, verses 5 through 7, is what can we do? We can build a God and worry and be afraid. Verse 8 through 10, what can God do? God can take care of it. Verses 11 and 12, what will God do? He'll hold my hand and get through it. Lastly, verses 14 through 16, let's re-ask the first question. Now that we know this, what can we do now? Verses 14 through 16. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Now, we always like being called lambs of God. Isaiah 41, 14 calls you a worm. That's actually a compliment. Now, seriously, now I know my, my wife does not like worms, okay, because she thinks they're gross and disgusting, whatever, and she hates it when you have those spring rains and the worms just come out all over the sidewalks and stuff. But just be honest, who's afraid of a worm? I mean, you may not like them, you may not want to touch them, they may be gross, but who's afraid of a worm? That's the point what God is saying here in verse 1. We are such a worthless, defenseless creature. We're a worm. 
He could have said, fear not my little lambs. He could have said, fear not my child. Fear not my servant, my brother, my bridesmaid. My He could have said any one of those other terms. He says, fear not, you worm. And he's actually saying it out of love. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. The worm becomes pretty aggressive. Because why? God is the strength behind the worm. This worm that's nothing is now a threshing sledge with sharp teeth. Now, I like verse 15. That's what I want to be called is the threshing sledge with sharp teeth. But the only way I become the threshing sledge with sharp teeth is look at verse 15. I will make you into one. It has to be God. Verse 15 again. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and the glory in the Holy One of Israel. The worm becomes strong through God. So much so that mountains are devoured, hills are devoured. We're a winnowing, destructive force, and I mean that in a good way. And how do we do it? Because God did it. And what's our response to that? Look at the end of verse 16. You shall rejoice in the Lord. You just stop and say, God gets the glory, it's not me. See, it's really easy when you've been a worm and God then strengthens you and you do something great for the Lord. It's really easy to start thinking that I'm no longer a worm, I did something. You know, I, I, I've had that before. A message goes really good. And it's like, yeah, that was good. You know, something really flows. Yeah, that really did go well. And I forget that I'm still just a worm. But I'm a worm that through the power of God becomes a threshing sledge with sharp teeth. But it's through God, and we always have to remember that. So remember this, verses 5 through 7. What can we do? Build God's be afraid. Verses 8 through 10. What can God do? He will strengthen us and uphold us. Verses 11 12. What will God do? He'll hold our hand. Now we ask again, what can we do when we're holding God's hand? Verses 14 through 16. We're now the threshing sludge with sharp teeth. It's the power of God. It's an amazing thing. Amazing, amazing thing. All right, anybody have any final questions, comments here before we uh, close up? Okay. Yeah, Mark. Not to burst your bubble, James. But, uh, okay. That's a great setup. Back to Kenyon and the tower. I think he was just looking for Nimrod to show him the tower of Babel. I lost you on that one. Was that a joke? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot I forgot what your jokes are like, Mark. I really did. <laughs> your jokes need a commentary, man. Because <laughs> sometimes I just don't get them. You want to try again? It's probably my fault. Okay. Did you get it? No. Okay. You were laughing, I guess. I didn't know. Tell it to me afterwards. I really would like to know the joke. So, sorry. Anybody else have any final? Yeah, John. Well, and that's one of the whole points of Isaiah. Is he says in another passage, he goes, you cut down this tree to build an idol, but then you also take some of that wood and burn it to make your food. It, it makes no sense. But you know, at the same time too, we may not have little statues sitting in our house today, but I know people that have idols, and their idol is their bank book. They got a good paying job, and their bank book keeps getting bigger. You know, There's people's idols are their health. I'm the one that's in good shape, whatever. So, I mean, people have idols today that they start thinking they did something for it and something with it. And the whole point of the matter is it's, it's, all going to go away as the grass withers. But, you know, you bring up a valid point. It's really quite silly to say, here's my God, and I had to make him. 
I mean, it just makes no sense. Yeah, Ryan. We have verses 22 and 23 again. Mm-hmm. Declare us things that shall come to pass, that we may know you are, you, you are God. And remind us a lot of the people who put so much stock in the Nostradamus and others were former prophets. Mm-hmm. Yet when you look at their actual text, I mean, they're so convoluted and uh, confusing. Right. You could really put any interpretation you want in there. I mean, you could look at one, I guess, prophecy of Nostradamus. One person would say, oh, this is talking about Adolf Hitler and the third Antichrist. It's, it's what I call shotgun prophecy. If I throw enough things out there, I'm going to hit something. And, you know, there's a great study done with the horoscopes where they gave everybody the wrong horoscope on purpose and said, do you think this is true? And they all said, yeah. And I'm not encouraging you, don't go read the horoscope in the paper. They are so generic. And, and, and same thing with sometimes with the Nostradamus. I've seen some of those things where it's like, you know, later on a great person will rise. Okay, yeah, that's true. I mean, we can all make prophecies that are that bland and whatever. That's the beautiful thing I love about this chapter, not to be repetitious, is he says the guy's name, Cyrus. He says the guy's name. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, you know, of a virgin. That's pretty impressive. Have any final things here before we close up? All right, let's pray then. Lord, as we come to you now, um, Lord, we just do thank you for your word and the power of your word. It's such an amazing thing to study and to see what you have to say in it. We love it, Lord. And Lord, for just uh, that application, Lord, help us to trust in you and uh, to not trust in us and our own abilities, our own strength, our own wisdom, because it's nothing, Lord. It's just nothing. So, Lord, help us to trust in you and let us just to hold your hand and walk beside you as you empower us, Lord. And we say thank you. And, Lord, thank you for loving us, worms. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Um, there's some people. Can-